0: Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, the title of this sermon is called, When God Gets a Hold of a Church. When God Gets a Hold of a Church. As a youth, I would often visit a particular church when I was younger. I believe the gospel was preached powerfully there. It was a vibrant church. I, I remember that the there was uh, old people, young people, teenagers, they were all coming and God was using it, and lives were changing, and it was an an expectancy to come on Sunday. There was a high expectancy to hear from the Word of God, and as as the years passed, I left that church, and there was, uh, as the denomination started to fall in its theological bearings, it started to chase after the worldly philosophies, and it did not hold to Scripture anymore. And as I returned, I just started to see just the the waning of this church. It was a sad thing. This church existed before for over a hundred years, and it was a thriving church, and now it was barely hanging on. There was no more, there was no more young people being injected into the church. There was no more sharing of the gospel. There was no more holding on to the truths that we hold so dear. Ministries were no longer vibrant. Lives were no longer being changed. And I saw in very stark contrast of of what I I came out of and what I saw then that as soon as the church loses its theological bearings, God himself removes the lampstand. The blessing, the blessing of, of folks being changed, lives being changed for Christ, people growing in the Lord, People growing in the word of Christ and he just takes the lampstand and he puts it in other places where the people are committed to his word, committed to living for him, committed to his uh, gospel, committed to his son. In Acts chapter 2, we're going to see this. This is what happens when God grabs a hold of a church. In Acts chapter 2, I'm going to read verse 42, and then I'm going to finish at 47. It says here, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. God gave this passage to you this morning so that you would ever strive to be a church that he uses for his glory. God gave this passage to you this morning so that you would ever strive to be a church used for his glory. And by the way, as I say this, brothers and sisters, I've seen some fantastic things that God has been doing through us. And so you could take this sermon as a, a excel still more sermon. As you hear these things, let us excel still more. Let us do more for the glory of God. Let us pursue more for the glory of God. Let's reach more people for the glory of God. Now, there are, um, I apologize, but there are nine points to my sermon, okay? There are nine main points. I usually have three or four. You came into a sermon that has nine points. So I pray you will still love me after this, okay? Okay. There are nine clear identifying characteristics of a church that God uses for his glory. Nine clear identifying characteristics of a church that God uses for his glory. When people go shopping for a church, that's what they they do. When they go looking for a church, they go, oh, I want the church with with the nice lighting, or I want the church with the... With so many programs and here and there, when you go looking for a church, this is God's estimate of a church. This is how he evaluates a church. This is how he would like you to base your judgment on a church. Number one, and this is just by way of review, verse 42, they were committed. They were committed. It starts, if you recall, Peter is preaching and he says, well, how are we going to be saved? The people are asking, how are we going to be saved? After he indicts them for the death of Christ. And he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And so God miraculously saves all these people. And they start to, and they join this church and they become part of this church. And they're committed to this church. And what marks them is this entire obsession, this devotion, this focus, this resolve of verse 42. In verse 42, this is what marks their life. This is the tempo. This is the rhythm of their life. This is what they prioritize everything around. It says in verse 42, chapter 2, they were continually devoting. As we saw last week, they were giving themselves. There was a commitment there. They were always about the business of practicing this. First, to the apostles' teaching, the preaching and the hearing of the apostles' teaching. That is doctrine. And then to fellowship. They did not forsake fellowshipping, of coming together and speaking about the things of Christ. They did not forsake the breaking of the bread. That is, uh, we believe that to be the ordinance of communion. They did not forsake prayer. And so what God does is when he saves these people, their lives are so changed that they rearrange their whole lives. Their calendar is not, okay, I'm going to put God in this section. Their calendar is now God is the center of my life and I will center all other things around that. I want to see how I can get to apostles teaching, hear apostles teaching, be in fellowship, practice the breaking of bread, practice prayer. Now there's a new motivation, a new focus, a new commitment. They made intentional decisions. By God's grace, I will be there whenever there is teaching. I will be there whenever there is fellowship. I will be there whenever we hold communion. I will be there when we pray. It was the four anchors that held him or her and held them hot for the Lord. You know, there are times in life, brothers and sisters, I experienced this too, where maybe my heart grows a little bit cold. Maybe I'll be, maybe I'm so beat up that I, I become apathetic. And God gives us these anchors to ground us once again. So when you're cold, let me encourage you. I would ask this question: Are you in sin that you haven't repented of? Am I in the Word? And then, lastly, am I committed to these things? As we spoke about last week, there are times when you you may not even be in the right frame of mind. Your attitude is just wrong. You have your ennui. You woke up on the wrong side of the bed every day, and you go to home group, or you come to service, and you simply hear the singing of the saints. And you hear, and a brother asks you, well, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for your walk? And as you hear these things, and the concern of the saints, and the singing of praises to God, and then you hear a brother preach from the word of God, you are set aright again. And your heart is set aflame again. Brothers and sisters, if you're veering from this, I would encourage you, get back into it. If you have a church that does not do this, As I said last week, run and find one. If they are not committed to the apostles' teaching, not committed to these things, these are the things that, yes, we, by effort, by us uh, pursuing it because of what Christ has done, we have to make a decision. Will I do this or not? And so the, the folks in the early church, they were committed we 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 labored over that last week but now I want to move on secondly they were reverential they were reverential look at verse 43 everyone kept feeling a sense of awe everyone kept feeling a sense of awe now that's it's interesting see the bible doesn't shy away from emotions you understand there is a brand of christianity that says all of Christianity is simply cerebral, simply theology, simply um, simply doctrine, and it doesn't affect my heart or it doesn't affect the way I, I live or feel. See, emotions aren't wrong in and of themselves if, as long as they are subservient to the truth. When the truth of God strikes you, you ought to feel the right emotions. In fact, if you don't feel the right emotions, there is something wrong with you. If God in fact saved you and has forgiven you of your sins, should one not feel joy? Should you not feel delight in your sins being forgiven? If God has convicted you of your sin, should you not feel the weight of the conviction of and the guilt of sin unless you repent to him? If you have a loved one who has turned from the Lord and turned from the appeals of the Lord, should you not weep for your friend, family member? Sure, there are emotions that are placed in Christianity that we should not remove. The text clearly says it. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. I love that. This is not something you would cordon off to only the first first century church. The word therefore, a sense of awe, is the word fear in their souls. There's a fear in their souls. There's a a respect, a reverence, an awe, a wholesome fear, a respect for authority. There is this realization that when we get together, and sometimes you get glimmers of this, right? Even as we're singing. Did you sense that as we were singing? We were singing to God. Right? And we know we were in the very presence of God as we we're singing to him. Jonathan Edwards called it the felt presence of God. He was one of the best theologians. He was the best theologian in, in all of American history. And he said, there is room for this. God has not created you only as a brain. He has created you as a, in your immaterial man as a mind, a heart, and a will. But what we desire is for God, for everyone to sense that we do everything in the presence of God. Everything that we accomplish is in the power of God. Everything that happens is under the sovereignty of God. It's not a mere abstract idea. It's reality which we live in. God and and the theologians would say we live in quorum deo, in before his presence. Now, it says they felt a sense of awe. Literally, it is this fear in the soul. It uses the word psyche, that immaterial part of man. Your mind is convinced of the truth of Scripture. You're particularly regarding Christ, His person, and His work. Your will is resolute in giving God praise in thought, word, and deed. Your heart is ravished with affections that such a one would stoop and die for you. When God works right in front of me, and I've seen this several times in my life. When God works right in front of me, I am in awe. I am dumbfounded. There are times I I talk with uh, the, the men in this congregation and I say, I can't believe what God is doing. Can you believe he did that? Can you believe the life changes that are occurring? Can you believe the growth in our young people? Lives are changed. Hearts are set free. The moment when I'm preaching or I'm teaching or I'm counseling, when the voice of God is heard through the preach word of God, there is this trembling, knowing that there, there needs to be repentance or forgiveness. Because now, as even as I preach in my stumbling speech and my messed up notes, as I am preaching and expounding the word of God, now you know it's not me speaking anymore. It's God speaking to you because the truth is coming out. And now you have to deal with God. And as you hear it, you sense that awe. Brothers and sisters, we desire that. I remember uh, I was at a... We, just, we were trying to reach out to a bunch of uh, Marines since we were at Camp Pendleton. And we were invited to a baby shower yesterday. So we went on base and it was pretty neat. Um, we got a chance to make some connections, a lot of connections. And uh, one of my jujitsu partners, he was there. As I was talking to him, he he was just—I just saw the joy he had because he was just saved just last year. And he says, "My wife and I were Roman Catholics, and we were just covered in guilt. I always had guilt." And then I said, and then what happened? And then she said, now I know I'm forgiven in Christ. And that sense of awe, that sense that God is right there, and we were fellowshipping in, in sweet harmony in unity over the forgiveness that is in God. God was there with us. Please don't look at this text and say, That's for the first century. That's not for us. Oh, brothers and sisters, we live and we swim in this. Amen? And it is the people of God who who he has worked in their hearts such that Christ is so worthy that I will give up my time, my energy, my life for the apostles' teaching, prayer, fellowship, and the breaking of bread. They were reverential. Thirdly, they were astounded. They were astounded. Verse 43, it says, Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Notice very clearly it says, through the apostles. Now, the word there for wonders, we've talked about this uh, word before. This word, why do you think he says wonders and signs? There's a reason, because he's trying to stress two different things. Uh, Luke is stressing two different things about the uh, the miracles that were taking place. Wonders stresses the emotion and the experience when a supernatural miracle happens around you. You are dumbfounded, you're astounded, you're speechless. And so they were seeing the apostles preach and then they would do miracles and signs and they were dumbfounded. The definition for signs is it stresses more on how you feel about the supernatural, not on how you feel about the supernatural miracle, but rather what it points to. So wonders stresses the, uh, the emotion that you feel when you see it. Sign stresses on what does it point to. And it points to the veracity, the authenticity of the apostles teaching. The, the phrase there through the apostles, it was particular to the apostles and some associates to verify and authenticate what they were teaching. That Jesus is the promised one to take away the sins of man. It was the same model as Moses came and Aaron came. And as they preached, they'll say, well, how, prove it. And what would they do? They, they did miracles. They did signs. And as the apostles came, they, would, they, they said, prove it. And what did they do? They did miracles and signs. But notice the text says, through the apostles. Now it's not needed. Why? Since we have the whole of scripture. Now teaching is authenticated, not by the miracles of apostles and associates, but rather by comparing it to the writings of the apostles and associates, the scriptures themselves. But that's not to say, I don't want to say, well, miracles don't happen. They do happen still. They just, there's just no appointed apostle anymore. But they still happen. A sick one is miraculously healed as the elders prayed. God gives you miraculous provision over and over. But I think one of the most miraculous things is when lives are changed as they come to repentance in Christ. Please don't underestimate what, that, what just happened. If, in fact, someone truly did come to Christ, the Bible says new life has occurred. They were dead in their trespasses and sins, and God has quickened them and caused them to be alive. And now a husband is kind to his wife and loves her as Christ loves the church. A wife respects her husband and submits to him as unto the Lord. Children now come to Christ and obey their parents as unto the Lord. The alcoholic drops his bottle and is now filled with the Holy Spirit. When an abandoned child, now an adult, is now adopted... Into God's family. That is miraculous. Amen. And they were astounded that that happened. We ought to be astounded. You know, sometimes uh, as we've been familiar with many of you guys in the, in the church, as we've been familiar with one another for quite some time, we know the stories of how God saved you. But even as I hear it still, I hear it once again. I'm astounded at what he did. And I'm astounded at what he does. Amen? I think I'm on point four. No? Point four. They were generous. They were generous. Verses 44 to 45. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Notice their heart of generosity. Practically, they made it a point to be with each other. It says they, those who believe were together. They planned it. They initiated it. They executed it. They did not live lives that were separate from one, separate from one another. They didn't stay away. They were not there only when it was times of rejoicing, but they were there when there was times of weeping. There was a commitment to one another in life as they all sought to follow Christ. And then it says, and they had all things in common. They were There was a sharing of all things, knowing that what they have in Christ was first initiated and maintained by the Father's generosity to a hell-deserving people. They shared their lives. They shared their resources. They shared their money. Why? Because Their whole new life was started by God's own generosity. Do you remember? For God what? So loved the world that He gave His only Son. And so what starts our generosity is God's own generosity to us. Giving us the best of prizes. His own Son. And now, as you look at the stuff that's around you, your house, the things that are in your life, and if you hold them with a tight fist, it is not congruent with the generosity that God himself gave you. He gave me Christ. Of course I'm going to share this with a brother or a sister who has need. It is utterly... Contradictory to be a selfish Christian. God has given you salvation. He has given you faith. He has given you repentance. He has given you a gift to serve in the church. He has given you brothers and sisters. He's given you forgiveness. He's given you peace. He's given you joy. And you hold everything back? It's absolutely contradictory there was a sharing of all things knowing that what they have in christ was first initiated and maintained by the father's generosity to a hell deserving people now notice the degree of their generosity it says they began selling their property and possessions now this is not a forced communism okay i'm not saying hey let's go and create a nice commune and we all get together and You know, everybody put their stuff in a pot and we'll all live that way. This is not a forced communism. This was a a voluntary giving of their own material possessions to meet a need. This was not forced. This was not manipulated. This was not coerced. And in fact, Paul says, if you coerce, if you manipulate, it removes the joy when they give, right? God loveth a what? Cheerful giver. And so... It's not supposed to be manipulated or coerced. But why did they do this? Well, you got to think about this. After Pentecost, remember all these, all these Jews came to Jerusalem for Pentecost. They hear the gospel. They are convicted. Peter offers the gospel. They get saved. They get baptized. Now they go, now what do I do? I'm ostracized by my home i am in isolation i am out here now i left my job to come to this festival right and now what do i do well after pentecost as many were being saved there were travelers there for the festival as they got saved they were so moved their lives were so radically altered that they wanted to be part of the jerusalem church plant consequently many of them left their occupations back home and they had need just to get back on their feet. The believers would see the need of their fellow brothers and sisters. They would sell their land, their houses, their property to fill that need till the believers can get on their feet. And it said, and they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. You know, many, many times this has struck me, the beauty of the church. I remember many times, I didn't grow up I didn't grow up a man of much wealth. I would say that still. (laughs) I'm thankful for what I have. But there were times when my mom was just raising me and Micah, and she barely could keep the lights on. And I was going to Robert Vega's home fellowship group. Robert Vega is an elder of our sending church. And I just casually told them, yeah, I do have need. But God's going to supply. They didn't tell me. I mean, we had nothing in the fridge. Our electricity was cut off, you know. um, And my mom was between jobs. And, you know, I just got saved. And I said, I need to get to work and help. And then in comes this truck. With a guy, many of you guys know him. His name is Bob Michaels. He comes. He says, "This is from the home fellowship group," and he just starts taking bags of groceries. Bags of groceries. And I remember my mom coming home and and she saw that and she goes, "Who did this?" My mom was not a believer at the time. I said, "It's it's our church. They just want to bless us." And then she came to church afterwards. She saw Robert Vega and just started weeping. Now, my mom came to church for about 20 years before getting saved. But I think it started, I I think it started a work in her heart where she saw, you know what? When God really does truly save and when the church is healthy, it does works like this. It provides for needs like this. And sadly, can I just say this? I have to say this. This should be the norm. Absolute norm. My wife, we were at that baby shower, and they're mostly unbelievers, right? And we have four kids. That's a little bit of kids in in RBC, right? Just a little bit, right? We had four. We had four kids, but as as the kids were infants and as they grew up, there was probably never a time I actually had to buy baby clothes, because we were always sharing. And after one child was done, I'd get some from the Lees or something like that, you know. And we never. And my wife goes, you know, I didn't even think about it. I just thought that was normal Christian life, and it ought to be. And I remember we were at that baby shower and the, the gal who was celebrating, she said, wow, someone gave me baby clothes. I didn't even think anyone would ever do that. And it just, just dawned on me. She doesn't have the community that we do. She doesn't have the partnership in Christ that we do. She doesn't have the, I'm going to have your back, you have my back. We are family in Jesus like we do. And I just took it for granted. Brothers and sisters, this ought to be the norm. Uh, I could tell you stories and stories. I, we, were, we, had, uh, we were on our second child, and we are living in California. You can't afford that, right? So, Jeanette was driving her old h- car from high school, right? And we were having our second child. This car was is a Toyota Tercel. It was falling apart, right? And I said, we need another car, and I don't have money, and I'm in Bible college, and I don't know what to do. God, I'm just going to tell you, because you own the cattle on a thousand hills. I can't afford a car. But you told me if I had a need, I could ask you. And as I'm getting into the... I, and I didn't tell anybody. I didn't even tell Jeanette, Right? And as I'm getting into the car, one of the doors, of course, don't open because it's a Tercel. (laughs) So you have to sneak back and, you know, do this and then open it from the outside. And I'm embarrassed. So I wait for people to walk around because I don't want them to see me reach like this. A brother comes up to me and he goes, I don't know why, but I feel like I need to give you this truck. Now, okay, I believe God works in the hearts of men and women. And I said, are you serious? I've been praying for a car. And he said, yeah, I just bought a brand new one, and I have an older one. Can I give it to you? And I said, yup. He says, I'll come over in the afternoon. He came over. He signed it over. I couldn't believe it was happening right we held hands and I just wept and wept and wept and cried and cried cried because it was God providing for me through the saints. Amen? And you all have stories like that if you've been walking with Christ. This is the normal church, brothers and sisters. This should happen normally within the church. They were committed, they were reverential, they were astounded, they were generous, and they were unified, notice, they were unified, verse 46a, it says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, that means to be unanimously with one mind, with one purpose by common counsel, pertaining to another lexicon says, pertaining to mutual consent or agreement. Of course, we have to go back. It starts with devotion to the things that God wants us to be devoted to, right? In verse 42, right? Because all of those things, those four things of apostles' teaching, prayer, breaking of bread, and fellowship, it gives you the motivation to glory in Christ. It reminds you of the motivation to glory in Christ. It solidifies you in your mission to spread the glory of Christ it changes your lifestyle to honor the glory of Christ it strengthens you your life is strengthened buttressed by teaching fellowship breaking of bread and prayer the sound doctrine glorifying Christ must always be priority and must take front and center stage Because what this does is it brings us together. We looked at Ephesians chapter 4, it says that God gave apostles and prophets and pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints, right? So that they would grow what? In the unity of the faith. The doctrine must be preached clearly, passionately, Christ centered for us so that we could be centered on one mission centered on one goal centered on one christ they were unified he is the head of the church so they were committed they were reverential they were astounded they were unified and they were hospitable this is a hallmark of christianity this is a hallmark of christianity breaking and breaking bread from house to house this was the communion table they remembered who Christ was and then afterwards they were taking meals t- together it's kind of like how we have our potlucks after communion right why why was this a hallmark why does paul say this in romans chapter 12 to be hosp- to be hospitable why does peter says peter say to be hospitable without complaint why because it shows a life that has been transformed by Christ why I was thinking about this as I was driving here. Why hospitality? Because of the extra effort involved. You have to spend time, extra time. You have to spend extra energy, extra resources. And every time you open up your house, you're risking. You're risking your life. You're opening up your life. And you know, many uh, um, when you look at investments and s- stock and portfolios, they always tell you to look at the look at the ROI, right? What's the return of investment? They are always saying, "Well, what's your return of investment?" Let me tell you guys. In a worldly spe- in a worldly way, when you are hospitable, the return of investment is very very low. You're going to get a dirty house with plates all over the place and scuff marks all over your wall, right? The return of investment is very, very low. You're extending yourself, and you're, you're, you're not going to get anything in a worldly way back. But let me tell you, the return of investment when you open up your home in hospitality reaps eternal dividends. I have seen people come to Christ when you open up your home. I have seen lives changed when you open up your home. I have seen people change their mind about the sin that they were seeking after when you open up your home. It is a, it is a, it is a, an open example of a life that is welcoming. It is a, it is a mirror. I don't, I don't know how to say it. It is a, it is a picture of the welcoming grace of Christ as he beckons people to come. So don't think hospitality is a minor ministry. Brothers and sisters, to reach, we have to be hospitable. You have to take those risks. You've got to open up your home. And see, what happens is, these people, as Christ has changed their hearts and their lives, they readily say, hey, they look at each other and they go, "Honey, we've got to open up our homes. There's a new couple in church. Honey, we got to do this. We got to invite them." Well, you know, my furniture's outdated, and I I wish I could change my curtains before I do that. No, 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 no. It does not say that in the text. Oh, you don't know my house. Well, you share what you got, brothers and sisters. God's not too concerned about whether or not you're following what, HG channel or whatever. He is concerned, If are you giving what you got? They were committed. They were reverential. They were astounded. They were generous. They were unified. They were hospitable. Number seven, they were joyful. It says, with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God. As they praise God, it fills them with joy. I like that word there, sincerity, it means simplicity. All I want to do is live a life that praises and honors Christ. That's all I want to do. Man, that makes life really simple, doesn't it? It helps me to make decisions if I'm, if I'm going to do a certain action or not. It helps me to make decisions if I'm going to take a certain job or not. It helps me to uh, make decisions if I'm going to hang out here or not. All I want to do is just glorify Christ. And when you do that, brothers and sisters, when your life is solely on Christ, you are filled, filled with joy. They were committed. They were reverential. They were astounded. They were generous. They were unified. They were hospitable. They were joyful. They were respectable. It says having favor with all the people. And of course, we understand that people... As a Christian, you will have those who persecute you. But here, uh, and just like in the requirements for elders, there is a reputation that they have both inside and outside the church. Here, they were gaining favor with people even outside the church. Um, I have to read this long quote because I think it's telling. Uh, there was a philosopher, a Greek philosopher in the first century, second century. His name was Aristides. A-R-I-S-T-I-D-E-S. And he he wrote an apology to the king. And he says, Some of the reasons the early church found favor with the common people can be discerned from the apology written by the philosopher Aristides early in the second century. Now, I I took this from MacArthur's uh, commentary. And he's making an apology for the Christians. And he says, now the Christians, O oh King, by going about and seeking, have found the truth, for they know and trust in God, the maker of heaven and earth, who has no fellow. From him they receive those commandments which they have engraved on their minds, which they observe in the hope and expectation of the world to come. For this reason they do not commit adultery or immorality. They do not bear false witness or embezzle. They do not covet what is not theirs. They honor father and mother, they do good to those who are their neighbors." Whenever they are judges, they judge rightly. They do not worship idols made in the image of man. Whatever they do not wish that others should do to them, they in turn do not do. They do not eat the food sacrificed to idols. Those who oppress them, they exhort and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Their wives, O king, are purest virgins, and their daughters are modest. Their men abstain from all unlawful sexual contact and from impurity in the hope of recompense that is to come in another world. As for their bondmen and bondwomen and their children, if there are any, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. He goes on and on, and he says, they observe scrupulously the commandments of their Messiah, living honestly and soberly as the Lord, their God, ordered them. Every morning and every hour, they praise and thank God. And such was the reputation of the church. They were committed to they were reverential. They were astounded. They were generous. They were unified. They were hospitable. They were joyful. They were respectable. And lastly, they were fruitful. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. First, we, we see a couple observations that one, God sovereignly grants fruit. The Lord was adding those who are being saved. It's not us, it's not programs, it's not structures. It's the Lord who does it. And that's what we wait for. We wait for the Lord to work in people's hearts. We proclaim the gospel and we wait for him. We wait for him to do the thing that we cannot do. We cannot change. We cannot rip, cause people to repent. We cannot convict them of their sin. They don't even think they're sinners. They don't even feel the guilt. They've calloused themselves with sin and they can't even feel it anymore. We ask God to convict them of their sin and to show them joy that is in price and God continually grants fruit he was adding day by day now we believe this to simply be a revival but I believe that God gives fruit regular fruit to a church who is committed to these things now I like the way Spurgeon said it he said the text does not say I planted and Apollos watered and God gives no fruit the text says I planted Apollos water and God giveth fruit, right? Correct? So the normal blessings of a church should be conversions. Now, it may not be in the hundreds, it may not be in the thousands, but as if a church is faithfully proclaiming the word of God, is faithfully being a witness in its fellowship, is faithfully being a witness in its breaking of the bread and in prayer and if a church is living like it should be living and it's healthy the church will grow as it is blessed by god this is what god wants more than you this is what he desires more than you he desires that christ would be glorified in the hearts of men and women and how does he do this how does he save people well It's not an evangelism program. I'm not big into it. I'm not against it. I think you should know how to do it, right? It's not an evangelism blitz. It was a church taught of God, filled with the Spirit, glorifying Christ by the proclamation of the gospel, mixed with the testimony of a supernatural church. The gospel was being shared and lived out in front of others, To such a compelling extent that many were being saved day by day. And what was the gospel? What was the gospel? God created us. Man fell in his sin. There is a vast chasm between us and God. Apart from him, we would be in hell forever. Man does not desire to seek after God in and of himself. Does not wish to obey him wants to do his own thing. But so God sent his son in an act of kind generosity and love. And his son lived the perfect life that we could not live. Died on the cross, suffered the wrath that you should have deserved. And if you but place your faith, your whole faith, your whole trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you will be Saved. That is the gospel. And that's what God uses to make true change, true reform in people's lives. Reform not from the outside in, but from the inside out. They were committed. They were reverential. They were astounded. They were generous, unified, hospitable, joyful respectable, fruitful. As God saves, he changes the heart such that you are devoted to the things that are important to him. As you do that, God changes your character and changes the very culture of the church. As the church becomes a testimony collectively collectively of his grace, it becomes a powerful, powerful apologetic that people from different backgrounds are still worshiping the same Christ and we're still together in Jesus. Such that you have no explanation, but simply the working of God in the hearts of men and women, youth and youth, to treasure, savor, and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what happens when God gets a hold of a church. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that you would move in us. Oh, make us not spectators in this, but active participants in the endeavor called your gospel we pray father we pray for churches we don't want to bash churches we pray for churches that they would be healthy and cling to the truth lord that they would be committed to the things the simple things that you have called us to be committed to the church is enamored with all these modern techniques and all these different things to do and yet fall to the wayside in discipleship and in the apostles' teaching and to prayer and to breaking of the bread and to all these simple things that you have caused called us to be devoted to. Oh God, would you awaken churches, would you awaken us? Melt our icy, apathetic hearts. God, if there are those here who do not know you, I pray you would do a mighty work. Convict them. Show them their sin, God. Save them, God. They're destroying themselves apart from you. Lord, it's a dangerous place when they feel nothing, when they sense nothing. Oh, God, would you move on that heart? We pray. Help us to sing. In Jesus' name, amen.